Um, with all the beautiful lights, frosted cookies, and gift giving, um, songs of a silent night, and cheery smiles that people put on, and, um, and sometimes a veneer of happiness that we place over our lives. And we can miss the deep suffering that accompanied the arrival of Jesus um, into this place. Um, in the stories we've already seen, that we have a child conceived out of wedlock, and people are talking about that. There's been the long sadness of the infertility that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth experienced. Um, we have a birth taking place in an unfamiliar place and under trying circumstances. And then in our passage that we're actually going to look at today, we have a family that's uprooted and moving as refugees to a foreign place that is not their home. And then a story of the murder of children, and that's town of that we sing about the little town of Bethlehem and it was a place of destruction in this story and, and hurt and pain one writer says this suffering haunts every corner of the birth narratives pain and loss mark the experiences of each character so yes the celebration of Christmas is a merry celebration of Christ's birth but perhaps Christ's birth is an encounter with joy and not happiness, because joy, biblically considered, can account for suffering, while happiness cannot. I mean, happiness rides on the shoulders of circumstances, doesn't it? And uh, joy does not. Joy uh, rides within the presence of God in the midst of it. Believing that the kingdom of God is already and not yet. Christ has completed his work, and yet we often talk about the story is not yet done as well. We all experience that reality in our day-to-day as we move into the world, the difficulties and the pains, personal suffering, as well as the, the deep brokenness in our world. And I believe that these difficult stories, particularly the one this morning, which is one that's really easy to skip in this Christmas time, rather than creating confusion for us, actually offers us a perspective that allows us to move out into the world and have something to offer into a world that knows a great deal about suffering and brokenness. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning, um, and uh, we're going to walk through this often overlooked Christmas narrative, um, and we're going to enter a little bit the suffering it describes, and then hopefully at the end here a few closing encouragements as each of us face um, our own times of suffering perhaps and the continued pain that's in our world. Um, the story here that we're looking at this morning, we're going to start with verse 13, but it follows the visit of the Magi, who had in first, when they came from far away, had first inquired to Herod, because they were looking for a king, they would assume that Herod would know where he was, or that he would be at a palace. So they have arrived, they've talked to Herod, and they've spoken about this baby that would be not only the king of the Jews, but just by the implication that they have come from another country, that they're a king, he'd be a king for all people. And the, that section, and they've come to discover him and to worship him. And it ends, uh, that story ends with the Magi arriving, finding Jesus, worshiping him. But then they leave by another way because they're warned not to go back to Herod. And they don't tell Herod where Jesus is as they were directed in his dream. And they depart without returning to Jerusalem. So a couple of quick, uh, quick notes about that, just to have some context here. Jesus is probably 
a year, possibly two years old at this point. The Magi arrive after his birth. Um, so um, Mary and Joseph have settled in there. It appears that Mary and Joseph have probably decided to stay in Bethlehem. Um, they probably had family there, which is part of the reason why he went back there for the, the census. And they've probably started settling into life. They, they, it wasn't like they were just in this temporary place again. They probably decided they're going to stay in Bethlehem. They've got family there. And they're, they're settling into work and life and just like things that we do, like any of us would do, settling into this place. Um, each of the three sections in our story this morning, because it's, it's broken into three parts, it, um, it ends with uh, a bit of what Gene was talking about, prophecy. It talks about, a, it talks about fulfillment of prophecy. And each section will end, will, will end with, it says, thus is fulfilled or this fulfills or this completes this prophecy. And each of them are marked out. Um, that way. If you recall from our, our studies in Matthew, to which we're going to return in a few weeks, and by the way, the introduction for this Matthew goes back a couple of years, doesn't it? So maybe you don't remember, but um, Matthew um, desires to make it abundantly clear that the arrival of Jesus was the arrival of the promised Messiah. So over and over and over again, he refers back to prophecies to say, this fulfilled this, he fulfills this, and lays all those things out. And in this section, each fulfillment is going to tell us something about Jesus. So even as we enter suffering, we look at this passage here. The heart of the passage is supposed to point us to Jesus and also supposed to help us understand the suffering that he entered into as well. So here we are, Matthew chapter 2. You can follow along if you have your Bible, and we're going to begin with verse 13. It says, now when they had departed, that's the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So he arose and took the child and his mother by night and they departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what was the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called uh, my son. Interesting, it says, when they departed, so it refers to the Magi. It's interesting that the, uh, the leaving of the Magi without having gone to Herod first is what sets off this chain of events in this story. Um, Herod pretends like he wants to worship. He just wanted to find out where Jesus was. And they leave and don't tell him. So he has an idea of the general area, but he doesn't know exactly where he is. Again, in this story, as we have through the whole nativity section, God uses dreams and an angel to bring a a message. And here the message is is an urgent one. And Joseph is told to flee to Egypt and then to stay there until he hears back from God. Imagine, it's one thing to hear God say, go do this. But then he like, doesn't know what the next step is. Like, just go there and wait until you hear from me again. He's already shocked each time he hears from God. It's kind of a, it's not a normal occurrence. It's like, how long will we be there? I don't know. When will you hear back? I don't know. Just go there. That's it. So imagine you've got a family, and you've just settled in someplace, and suddenly you are told to leave and go somewhere and, and just figure it out. And, I'll, and then God will let you know later on what's to change. And that's what's happening here. And he's informed that um, Herod wants to destroy the child, Jesus. Interesting, a little side note, Herod was an Idumean, which means that he was of the line of Esau. 
And Jacob is of the line of who? Or Jesus is the line of who? Jacob, right? And this whole conflict um, between Esau and Jacob, which is really between a carnal spirituality and a genuine spirituality, is at play in here as well. Also note this, God knows what was going to happen. Um, Herod hasn't even decided to do this yet. And God is never caught by surprise. It's, he's, we'll see this, we've seen this in every story. God has been working, even for hundreds of years, to bring about his work. It's never caught by surprise. And interesting, I love this here, Joseph obeys fully and immediately. Over and over again, especially Joseph and Mary, it's amazing the, the, how quickly they obey. When our kids were growing up, um, we always had this little saying that about obedience. It was right away, all the way, and with a happy spirit. Right away, all the way, and with a happy spirit, which children love hearing that, right? <laughs> um, adults don't get that either, right? Um, we might do it eventually. Um, we might do it partially and we grumble as we do it, don't we? And here we get this. I love Mary and Joseph. They, they immediately respond. There's no hesitation at all. We see no complaint, and they fully do what God asks them to do. Do not miss the hardship and the suffering here. Again, if take yourself, brand new baby, and, and put yourself in their spot. Imagine, what is that like? And it's not like they just got in their, their you know, suburban and drove to Egypt or something, you know, they had to go find a caravan and she just, you know, with a little baby and they got to make this trip into Egypt. There's danger. It's imminent. There's an uprooting from their life and all of their plans. I mean, we all know what it's like to, to settle in someplace. You start thinking about what you want to do and where you're going to go, what your home's going to be like. All these things, they've, they've got to give that all up. Like many of us, they've probably established a job and home, friends, a, a sense of place, and he's, they're being asked to release all of that without any preparation or time to get used to it or any kind of warning. They're going to travel with a little child, which in modern days is a nightmare as it is. Um, I've been through those experiences, um, and yet they're going to do it in, in, under hard circumstances. They're going to be refugees in a foreign land. They're going where it's not their home, among people that are not of their own, with no plans as to when they can return, if ever. Christ's life from the very, very beginning was, was seeped in and born out of hardship. Over and over and over again, we see it. And then we have this first prophecy. It says this, This was to fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. The prophecy that, that Matthew mentions here comes out of Hosea chapter 11. One of my favorite verses is, um, it talks about Israel is my child whom I love. I love that beginning of that. Um, Hosea 11 chapter 1, it's, it's, and it says, And out of Egypt I have called my son. Actually, Hosea, this section here is actually about the deliverance of Israel from the bondage in Egypt. And that deliverance was precipitated by what? The death of a firstborn um, in, these, uh, in this 10th this plague in Egypt. 
and which was a way to escape. And, and the way to escape that was by this blood of the lamb on the doorpost. It's this picture of God's deliverance. And so here, Matthew refers back as they're heading into Egypt with the promise to eventually come out. As these children are about to be killed, um, he refers back to that same thing, this, this picture. Lots of parallels to this passage. If you recall from our study of Matthew, uh, Matthew presents Jesus as the new Moses over and over and over again. He kind of parallels the life of Moses, even going out in the wilderness in 40 days and coming back. And here we see Jesus exiled out into Egypt. And then we know the story. He returns with deliverance, and he comes back to give deliverance to the people, not just from a physical bondage, but to the bondage to sin. And Jesus inaugurates this a new exodus. We get a picture here. As God in his mercy brought deliverance for his people from Egypt, now Jesus brings deliverance and he will save his people from their sins. Interesting, Israel often was often referred to as was often referred to as God's son. And I'll say eleven here says, Out of Egypt I have called my son my people. And here he's going to bring out his the son of God from that place. Interesting, if you read on in Hosea chapter eleven, it says, um, Israel is my child whom I love. Out of Egypt I have called my son. You know what the next verse says? Although I kept calling, they didn't respond. It talks about Israel's failure to respond to God's calling. As much as he loved him and kept saying, come to me, they refused. And in Jesus, we get the fulfillment because as God calls him, he obeys. Scriptures tell us that he obeyed all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus fulfills what Israel had never done. The story goes on. The second scene is suffering in Bethlehem. This is a horrific story. It says, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. Uh, the word is enraged, which seems to be a pattern for Herod. It was a little, something was not right in his head. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time when he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod had a... Um, a pattern of unstable behavior. As a matter of fact, when he first took power, um, he felt there was treachery in his home, so he had his wife murdered and a couple of his sons, um, and he's done these kinds of things all along. And here we have these important people um, from a faraway country come looking for a king, and the king wasn't Herod. And he, in his pride and his jealousy and his anger and his rage, it just is churning in him. He just does not want anyone to take his place. A king that would be, by implication, not just king of the Jews, but for all people. And he sees Jesus, even though he hasn't even seen him yet or know anything about him, he sees Jesus as an invader of his kingdom. His little kingdom, his place he's setting up where he's going to be at the top of it, he sees that there's this somebody coming along who wants to take that place, an invader of his plans, an invader of his greatness. And, and so he opposes it. Pharaoh was the same way, right? Here's about a deliverer being born in Egypt, and he does what? He 
he begins to set up this thing to kill all the, all the babies, the male babies. And Moses is rescued and delivered out of that place and becomes a deliverer. You get the same thing happening here. By the way, I, I know that we all would like to relate to the wise men who are faithful worshipers or to Joseph and Mary who always did the right thing, it seems like. Um, but the scripture said, outside of Christ, we are all enemies of him. We oppose Jesus stepping into our plans, our desires, our little kingdoms that we build, right? In our minds and our hearts, we all rejected him. Um, that's, that's what it means to be a sinner. Uh, it just gets, it gets the picture of Herod just makes it look really awful, doesn't it? But that's who we are outside of Christ, the scriptures tell us. And the fact is, even in, even in Christ, we still do that sometimes. We still resist to him stepping in and wanting to change our plans and step into wanting to take the little kingdom I'm making of my life and saying that's not how it's supposed to look, Chris, and he wants to change it, make it like him. Sometimes we resist. So Herod, based on what he discovered about the wise men, when they came, when they saw the star and they think through all that, he decides to kill all the male babies that were born in Bethlehem and its region that were two years old and under. Based on the size of Bethlehem, that was probably 20, 30 children were killed at that time. We, if we just stop long enough, we never do this with the Christmas story because the Christmas story is supposed to be happy, right? Stop and think about homes where soldiers are going in and they're removing the children, removing these newborns, and they're murdering them. That's what happens. It's just It's horrific. Happens in our world today still. S consider the suffering that attended the birth of Jesus. In his birth, at the same time, there was death happening, and horrific death, and mourning, and loss. The loss of children in the worst possible ways. First in this home, and then in another one, and then in another one as they move through the city, and there's just grief and pain. And the lives of these people that are impacted by this, they're going to feel that pain for the rest of their life. That's never going to be over for them. And that's what happens here in this scene. And then we have the second prophecy. Starting in verse 17, it says, There was a, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Ramah is a, a city that's, that's north of Jerusalem, and it encompasses the, the territory of, of Bethlehem. Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This comes right out of Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. It was talking about when the Babylonians came into the country, and they just tore everybody up. They, they just came in, they just removed whole homes, and what, uh, what um, Nebuchadnezzar did when they pulled the people out, um, they, took them to a, they took them actually to Ramah, the city of Ramah. And they transported the people there. And from there, they divided up families and sent them on different caravans as they exiled them to other places. So consider again the pain of that. Uh, much of what happened during the Holocaust where they, they brought these people in and then they separated husbands and wives and children and sons and daughters and, and it took them away from everything that was familiar and, and tore them apart. 
as you're exiled. And Jeremiah talks about the anguish of that period of time that the people felt when this took place. The mention of Rachel here is twofold. First, of Rachel was Jacob's um, favorite wife, right? Um, and uh, she actually is buried outside of Bethlehem, where she died giving birth to Benjamin. And so when people thought of Bethlehem, they didn't think of a little town of Bethlehem, how still we see the lie. They thought of a place of weeping. It was where Rachel died. And um, she actually named her son, um, the word for Benjamin there, the, the, the version she used, she called him the son of my sorrow, the son of my sorrow. And Jacob changed it to the son of my right hand when he changed his name after she passed away. Interesting, Jesus is both, is he not? He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and yet when he was raised up, he sat at the right hand of the Father on high. He's both. So for Israel, Bethlehem is associated with sorrow and death. And then also, the other way that Rachel's used, she was used to represent uh, like the mother of the country in some ways, of the people. And so when it talks about Rachel's weeping for her children, um, she is, when, when the Babylonians took away, Rachel had already died. Um, but, but it's the, as though she wept for her nation that was being carried away. So their Jeremiah passage also uses Rachel as a symbol of the mothers of the nation who cry out for all their sons and their daughters who are carried away and lost to them. And so here in Matthew pulls out this and says it was also fulfilled in this instance because there was more pain that was going to happen in this region. Final thing here, um, again, Jesus is born in the midst of and out of sorrow and suffering. But it's later through his own suffering as the man of sorrows who would rise to God's right hand that he would um, make the place of Bethlehem that had been originally thought of as a place of death we remember it as a place of birth, right? Where he's born because he came and gave his life. He changes all of that for us. He comes and makes a new beginning and, and the mournful exile that, that the, the weeping was over has ended as he brings, God brings his people back to himself. Interesting, Jeremiah 31, it's talking about this weeping, loud lamentation, but the rest of Jeremiah 31 is all about the new covenant. That Jesus came to, to give a new covenant for us, to, to offer something brand new. It says in Jeremiah 31 later on that the children will return from the enemy land and that there is hope for your future, for God has declared it. And so Jesus brings in a, a new exodus from sin and he also brings in a new covenant for us. So we have this prophecy about this. There's a fulfillment of this prophecy that happened earlier, but it also happened when Jesus was born, that there was this weeping that was attended with his birth. And yet that weeping turns into um, joy as the one who is born there actually brings life for us in his work. The last scene is returned to Nazareth. It says this, verse 19. When Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. I thought he probably thought, yes, <laughs> good news. And he was in Egypt, and it said to this, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. 
for those who sought the child's life are dead. So he arose, and he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. They were probably in Egypt based on when Herod died for about a year. Um, they had, again, probably started settling in somewhat. Um, and now they're moving again. Um, moving is stressful, right? Um, it always is, especially foreign travel and being uprooted again. Um, we lived in Wheaton, Illinois, and um, my dad didn't like, we just stayed in the town, but he didn't like staying in the same place, so we moved a lot. Um, and we lived in three houses on one block. I mean, we lived, we lived across from the grade school I went to, and we moved around the corner. And all I remember from that house is I got stung by about 20 hornets one day. And then we moved around to another corner. And um, my dad, he would just decide he was going to move, and he would say, Marilyn, we're moving. Take care of it. And it was like he would go to work and she would move us. So um, it was stressful. It was stressful. Great. Again, Joseph obeys and follows God's directions here immediately. And interesting, God doesn't tell him exactly where to go. He says, go back to Israel. And it's kind of like an open door for him. And I imagine he was probably heading towards Bethlehem because they had already been settled there. They had settled in, and they were probably, let's just go back to where we were. But as they do that, they hear that in that area, Archelaus is reigning. Um, which is the son that Herod had actually chosen to take a spot. It is, in fact, if the, the truth is there was three sons that were the kingdom was divided up among, with Archelaus having the biggest region. Herod Antipas was up in Galilee, one of the sons, and his other son, Philip, um, was reigning a different area, and then we had Archelaus at the biggest spot. And Archelaus was wicked. He was like his father. As a matter of fact, as he took power in his area, he had 3,000 Jews killed just to show that he was ruling over that area. The people hated him. And so they actually sent a delegation to Rome in protest of him overseeing that area, and he was actually exiled by Rome um, because of he wasn't going to be able to rule. But in a dream, Joseph hears that this Archelaus is in that region. He's like, we're not going there, which is a good thing. So they headed up to Nazareth, which is where Mary and Joseph were from, in the beginning, they eventually headed back home, their hometown. And then the third prophecy comes up. It says, and they went and they lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Interesting enough, there's no actual prophecy calling Jesus a Nazarene. You can look over the Old Testament, you're not going to find one. Um, most scholars believe that Matthew, led by the Holy Spirit, has taken a composite sketch of who Jesus is, how he'd be viewed, and then described him as such as a Nazarene. They found this contemporary example. What's a contemporary example that would illustrate who the Old Testament prophesied Jesus would be? Nazareth was the lowest of the low as far as economic measurements in that region. So if you, you think of the worst part of town, that's what Nazareth would be. Um, and that's where they had settled in. And not only was it economically poor, they, they kind of, people viewed people in Nazareth as kind of backward. 
They're the ones that are kind of out of the picture. They don't really know what's going on. They're this uneducated group that they were scorned, they were despised, um, they're derided, which is, which is why when uh, one of the, Jesus comes along, one of the, is it Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nothing good comes from that place. And so I think this prophecy is looking back at all the Old Testament passages that say what about Jesus, the Messiah. Isaiah 53 says he will be despised. And rejected by men, a man of sorrows. And that's a picture of you're from Nazareth. That would be a description of you. And settling in Nazareth, Jesus is seen to take on everything that was regarded about as that city. As an outcast of nobody to take notice of, which is even Isaiah goes on to say that you wouldn't even recognize him. He doesn't, doesn't look like anything that anybody would take notice of. And that is exactly what Jesus did. We even sang that. We sang in the song, it says, he took the, the path of descent on our behalf. He took our shame. He took our abuse on himself. Um, and the king would be looked on with rejection, which is exactly how people would have viewed people in Nazareth. It's also possible that Matthew is seeing a connection between the name Nazareth and there's a Hebrew word that sounds exactly like Nazareth, that means the branch or shoot. And we saw earlier on in our, our nativity passages that Jesus is going to be called the branch, this, this one who would bring life to us. A prophetic description of the coming of the Messiah. And out of that place, we know exactly what happens to Jesus. Those who deride him and despise him and reject him and they treat him as having no value, they're the very ones, including us, who Jesus loves and gives his life for in the end. It's a hard story, isn't it? Just as you start thinking about what was, you know, could God have prevented this? Yeah. Did God cause it? No. There's all these philosophical things we wrestle with, with tragedy, even as we look at our world and we see things that happen, and we're like, where is God in the midst of it? That's been part of our theme here. All shall be well. Well, is it all well? It doesn't look very well out there. And the, the trouble is within our own homes, is it not? There's, you just got to go a block from here, and there's pain and hardship and difficulty. And we read things over and over again of just horrendous things in our world. Jesus knows all about that. He was born out of that very kind of place um, for a world that desperately needed it. So a few closing reflections. Um, until the story is done... We still live in a world of brokenness where there's still evil and there's still suffering. We live in a time where sin, although it's been dealt a death blow by the cross, um, as a, one professor might say, it's, it's still out there, but it's on a long leash. But it still runs and still kind of impacts us and impacts the world. And the things that happen are just a consequence of it. There's still pain and difficulty some of us are even left with wounds in our own lives that are going to last a lifetime. Scripture allows for suffering. Well, there's room for it. And calls us to long for a day when it's going to be ended. And we've talked about that these last few weeks. That we should have a desire and a longing that should be within our heart going, How long, O oh Lord? When will you return again and finally finish this? 
kingdom of God is here, as Jesus said, and yet not yet. Isn't that true? And we're called, even in this time, as we walk through it and we let him do a work in us, uh, to lament the suffering that's still there. Um, matter of fact, we didn't, we didn't write this this year, but Advent leading up to Christmas is supposed to be a time of fasting and lamentations and waiting for the coming of Christ, saying, how long, when will you come and bring rescue? And today we are to be people that not only rejoice in all that he's done and the goodness, because we're on this side of the cross and the freedom that we have, but we're to lament the brokenness that's still in our world. I am an expert at ignoring problems, so that's, that's the kind of home I grew up in, and let's just pretend everything's okay here. Um, and we generally have a tendency to try and ignore suffering, to not acknowledge it until it comes knocking on our door in a way that we just can't avoid any longer. Interesting, if you read the writings of the early Puritans, you will read about death almost in every single chapter and suffering. They wrote a lot about it. Um, and yet they also write about mercy and joy and the work of God. One of the greatest of these in terms of writing was uh, Pastor John Owen. Um, Jerry just sent me a little article about him that had been written, but I've, I've got a couple of books upstairs. They're kind of books you read it like ten times. You're still not quite getting it, but you know there's something really good here. Um, but John Owen was incredible. And aside from all the suffering he went through as a nonconformist, he was basically on the run as a pastor because he couldn't preach. Um, he, he and his wife, Mary, had 11 children, and all of them died but one, all of them. And of course, in their life, that was like a death of a child every few years in his life. And yet he was firmly rooted in his belief that God is present, that God is working, that God is good in the midst of the suffering that he couldn't even explain. So for us, both personally, but also as we we go out into this place that's filled with it. A couple, couple suggestions. And these are things that we've, we've seen in these passages over the last four weeks. Number one, um, look closely at what's going on as you walk through your day. The hand and presence of God is always in the place of suffering. God always meets us in those places. And you've got to look closely for it. Because when we just let it overwhelm us, it just takes us. But, but look closely. Interesting, in these stories we've looked at, the, the trace of God is so evident. You just cannot miss it when you get the stories. But the people that are in the middle of it could have easily missed it. So look closely. The hand and presence of God is in the place of suffering. Second of all, look around. God is sovereign in the world. He rules. And I know it doesn't always look that way. But if we were able to step out and be kind of transcendent from it all like God is and see his perspective, we would suddenly see a very, very different picture. Kind of like um, the, the servant who has eyes were opened in the Old Testament and suddenly saw that they were surrounded by angels and he didn't see him before. We, we miss that because we are just so covered over with all the stuff that's happening. And it blinds us and it numbs us to the work of God and it shuts her eyes to it. Look around. God is sovereign in the world. And I would encourage us, maybe in this year, to not just mark out the difficulties that we see. We talk about how messed up the world is all the time. How much do we talk about the blessings we see? What we're seeing? Taking note in each day, what is God doing? Third, should be obvious, 
we should look to Jesus. Interesting, God does not speak into our suffering from some faraway place saying, you guys figured it out, I'll help you from up here. He doesn't do that. He came, the, 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 the whole, all these stories tell us that he came and lived in the middle of it. He experienced it himself. Here's what one writer says. I just like the way he words this. In this story, we see God not merely guiding and directing people from somewhere up there and out there in a galaxy far away, but we see the very presence of God, the flesh and bones of the divine, bouncing around in the arms of and strapped into the back of and nestled and nuzzled at the breast of Mary and Joseph as they risked their lives and the life of Jesus on the run in those early days. Because this is still our story. Rachel weeps still for her children, but God is with us still in the midst of life as we know it. And it is the kind of presence that is our strength and confidence, our comfort and our hope, as we move ahead into another year that's certain to be full of new struggles, new celebrations, of new challenges and new opportunities to be God's people. Where God's love, born in Christ Jesus, is still very much alive and well, as with us and with us as we go. Where God's love, born in Jesus Christ, is very much alive and well and with us come what may. I love the fact that God is in it with us. That's the, the message of God with us. He's here, which is why we can actually say all will be well because all will be well is dependent on who's with me, right? And because God's there, all will be well, despite what might be going on around us. Brian, if you could bring the uh, worship team back up. The table here, particularly if you're visiting with us this morning, um, we have one here, there's one on the side and then in the back as well. Um, we do this every week, um, not because believing it doesn't get old, if we understand what it's about, because we have to be realigned every seven days, the fact that God is in our midst, that he has done a work and that his work is for us. And so we come around this table once again to remember to let him do that work in us afresh. Jesus came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. He came and he entered our suffering and even took on our sin so that we could be recipients of what? All of his righteousness, which is given to us. He knows our weakness, our temptations, and even our trials. And even on the very eve of his greatest struggle and his greatest suffering, gathered his friends together for a meal. 1 Corinthians 11 says, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the very night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. And we, we say it over and over again here. If you, if you know the, the Lord, there's a seat at the table and it's got your name on it. And he says, come, he welcomes us. This is for you, so do it in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper. He said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. Do it remembering me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. And here we go, looking ahead to the day he comes and longing for that return, the completion of his story. If you're visiting this morning, the, the table is open. If you know Jesus, the table is open. Um, the way has been cleared by his cross and his blood for us. 
um, we just break off the bread and we, we dip it in the cup and we take it and we give thanks and we remember him. I'll pray and then as we sing, I invite you to the table. Lord, you know intimately, far beyond any of us, suffering and difficulty and trial and trouble. And so you can speak to our hearts in ways um, that make a difference. Thank you for being obedient all the way to the point of the cross so that we could receive all the riches of the kingdom placed upon us. And thank you that in times of difficulty, um, we can find you a firm foundation and a steady rock for our lives. As we gather as a body this morning, Lord, we do it to lift you up and to give you thanks. Amen. Remember, we we don't leave. Uh, Rather, God sends us carrying the kingdom of God into a place that desperately needs to see it. So receive this as we go out. Go in peace, love and care for one another in the name of Christ. May the Spirit of God fill your hearts, souls, and minds. May the power of God strengthen you for what each day brings. And may the love of God be your living hope, your anchor in storms, and your guiding light and shining star, both now and forevermore. Amen.